Happy New Year to everybody. Did you have a good New Year? I did. How was your break? It was awesome. What'd you do? Uh, nothing, which was the goal. Do you watch Netflix, Amazon Prime? Is there sports on you watch? No, I piddled around the house and did holiday things and didn't do email, which was a win. That did was you, the big win. Did you do your wife's to-do list? Do you have a long uh, to-do I have my own to-do list. I, I like make my own to-do list. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim Lowe. And I'm Dr. Ashley Mytek. And welcome to The Round Bar. All right, well, we're gonna need coffee to get through today's topic because there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the infectious disease world right now. Why don't we talk about what is on everybody's mind, this Omicron variant. It seems like all of my friends are getting COVID right now. Everybody's getting COVID. Why is that happening? Well, everybody's doing it, it's popular. <laughs> no, no, that's... So it's an interesting bit, right? As we think about infectious disease and, and this, these viruses, and, and we've chatted about this before, but these RNA viruses have got a, we call it a plastic genome. So they-, they A what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm an anesthesiologist. You used a so, word that is not in my vocabulary. So they change rapidly, right? So they're highly variable. Um, and so they're not um, conserved is the fancy word. And so the genes change a lot. Um, and that's how they adapt, and that's their survival strategy. And so this is expected, right? We've got a lot of RNA viruses out there, flu, and in the animal world, PERS, and, and, and BBD, and, and other things. So we've got these RNA viruses that change very, very rapidly. This happens all the time. Uh, and so this thing got introduced to humans, and it's just figuring out how to transmit in humans better. And so this is, you know, I think disease ecologists um, and those of us who pretend to be disease ecologists said, mm-hmm, yep, this is how it works. So you're not surprised by, it's fair to say, the evolution of the virus, that it is evolved into a virus that is easier to spread? No, not surprised at all. In fact, if you just had to like start with a hypothesis and say, what's going to happen? evolutionarily, this is exactly what you'd expect to happen. It's going to get better at doing its job. And a virus's job is jump to the next host. So when is this going to end then? Uh, end is a silly word. It's not going to end. It's now endemic, right? And so I think, I don't know if the WHO has finally admitted that or not, but this virus has basically been endemic in the po continuous transmission in the population, right? Shortly after it was introduced. And so... This is like influenza and every other virus we have that floats around now, right? It's it's there. And so we've stomped out a few viruses, right? We got rid of smallpox. We've, by and large, kind of gotten rid of polio. Um, you know, there's a few pockets of polio still in, in Asia. Um, I think some of Pakistan and some, you know, right, some areas where we haven't had good vaccination rates. But, um, you know, by and large, those are the two viruses we've had kind of big wins on. <laughs> Those are both DNA viruses. They don't change genetically, pretty easy to vaccinate against. And is that why you can stomp out those viruses versus it can be harder to stomp out something like COVID or even the flu virus? Yeah, so there's differences in those in terms of both their change, i.e. their ability to evade the immune response, plus they're not as transmissible. So um, really deadly effects, but they don't transmit as easily. It takes a lot more contact. And these respiratory viruses that are shed in the upper respiratory tract, flu, coronavirus, you know, we've got PERS in pigs, parsing urge production, respiratory syndrome virus in pigs. 
these things um, shift. And PERS is a really interesting discussion. And it's a pig virus. It's not related to COVID at all. It's an RNA virus and it's in pigs. But that virus really started primarily as a reproductive virus and it transmitted reproductively. Uh, so it was sexual transmission of that virus, but it also infected the lungs. And as we stopped sexual transmission, we stopped infected boars. So it could be transmitted in the semen. So when we tested all the boars and we removed the virus from the boars, the thing just became a respiratory virus. So now you have PERS in pigs as a respiratory virus. Yeah, it's primarily a respiratory virus today. And the transmission thing is, is that, and Scott D. did this work, we thought the virus, there was no aerosol transmission of the virus because they used some of these original viruses from the 90s. Um, and they couldn't create respiratory transmission, aerosol transmission, small droplet transmission. And now that's probably the dominant route of transmission is small droplet, upper respiratory secretion, transmission of the virus. So the virus changed how it's transmitted, essentially. The virus is, is yeah, the virus changed how it's transmitted because it said, ah, I can't transmit the way I used to, which it used to produce a lot of virus in semen. It was a reproductive thing. And it said, okay, I can't do that. Well, I'm going to now transmit respiratory. And so they've documented that very clearly that the new strains preferentially reproduce in the upper respiratory tract and they are shed that way. How is a virus like PERS or COVID smart enough to figure out that they need to spread via respiratory transmission or that it's better to make to, to spread a lot and only make people a little bit sick so then those people don't die, they just keep spreading it? Yeah, so it goes right back to the core of evolutionary theory. So first of all, a virus isn't smart. So these RNA viruses are clever, or they have a unique adaptation. And you start, don't call them smart, they have a unique adaptation. They don't exist as a single virus. Because they have so much um, mutation rate in their substitution rate in their, in their replication, they actually exist as what we call a quasi-species. So if you if a pig has PERS, let's use that as an example, it doesn't have one virus. It has many, many viruses. And the one that we would, the strain that it has, the sequence it has, is what we call the consensus sequence. It's the most common sequence that we see. And so it's the most common strain, but there's a lot more there. And what we know is, and we did some of that work here with Tony Goldberg years ago to prove that PERS exists as a quasi-species, as does influenza. And as probably does, I've not seen the work, but I presume COVID does. I mean, these things, that's how they work. What it really means is, is that, that in endemically infected populations, there's a lot more variation in an individual animal, an individual pig in this case, with PERS. And in acutely infected populations or in acutely infected animals, there's a lot less variation. So we get a lot of virus variation. And then the, the virus, it's evolutionary trick, right? So when we think about evolution and we think about evolutionary theory, fitness means you're more likely to pass your genes on to the next generation or an individual gene, right, onto the next generation. We think about fitness not really as a whole host, but individual genes. So I'm more likely to pass an individual gene to the next generation. And so what defines fitness is the ability to do that. And with a virus, I can't replicate without a host. And so if I have, um, if I use my host resources quickly, I kill my host. <laughs> then I have to transmit to the next host 
before I kill my first host. So RNA viruses, this is where they've worked out, right? Where the, they've evolved to, they exist as this quasi species. So they have, because they don't have very many genes, <laughs> it's a really, really small bit of genetic material. A virus is really, really small. And so because they don't have very many genes, their adaptation in a, in a mammal, in us, we have lots of genes and there's duplicate pathways. And so I can do the same thing multiple ways. Well, a virus has only got one way to do it. So instead of having multiple pathways within the same host, they just have lots of pathways within the same population. And so as you cut off one, in this case, let's think about per sexual transmission, those viruses that replicated in the seminal vesicles and ended up in the semen at high rates, all of a sudden weren't as preferred, they weren't as likely to be passed onto the host as those that passed in the respiratory tract. And so we selected for those viruses that wanted to live in the upper respiratory tract. And that initially is pretty slow, right? We thought we were winning. We cut off semen transmission. We tested and stopped semen transmission. So it looked like we really, really reduced the rate of PERS transmission. We thought, okay, we're winning because there weren't very many of the viruses in the population that were respiratory preference. But as those viruses started to become more common, whoop, we saw a big change in the, in the outcome and now we've got rapid spread. So to answer the question of when is this gonna end, it's not gonna end. We're gonna have COVID in our life, the rest of our lives probably. Um, hopefully we will all have vaccines and our boosters or get immunity to it from having it. Um, speaking of boosters, how's your arm? Oh, yeah, I got boosted about an hour ago, so I'm super proof now. You're still here yeah, with I, us. That's I haven't awesome. died, yes. Um, so hopefully you will have, what is it going to take your immune system a few days to respond uh, to that? Oh, seven your, to ten probably, yes. And then and you're, you're super powered, Super powered, yes. And why exactly, I feel like there are some vaccines my kids get or I get, right, that we got as kids and you get boosted. And then you're good to go the rest of your life. You're good for 10 years. What was the impetus for various agencies coming out and saying, we highly recommend everybody who got vaccinated get another booster? Yeah, so it's uh, the joys of the, of the immune system. And so these RNA viruses, particularly coronaviruses, so all the coronaviruses, actually don't produce very good immunity. So it's interesting, right? When we think about COVID, the disease appears to be primarily driven by a poor immune response, i.e. a non-dampened, so it's an overreactive immune response, I guess is the best way to put it. So when we think about an immune response, we think about two pieces. One, there's the kill it phase, and then there's the healing phase. And every immunologist that ever listens to this, don't be offended with my simplification of the immune response, right? But it's kind of that simple. And it's really complicated how that works, but that's kind of the gist for, for the layman. And so we've with this COVID thing, it appears that we've got the killing phase going crazy and it kind of forgets to turn on <laughs> the healing phase and turn off the killing phase. So it quits playing offense. Um, it just keeps playing offense and forgets to play defense or keeps playing defense and forgets to play offense and, and fix it back up. And so um, that's the inner thing with, with COVID. But at the same time, it doesn't produce an immune response that's very deep. And so we think about immune responses in two ways. We think about them in very broad breadth. So how wide a variation will it protect? And this one appears it's pretty good, right? I mean, these variants, I mean, the vaccine, the original vaccine is protecting pretty well against these new variants. Okay, so breadth appears to be okay. But depth isn't very good. It doesn't last very long. And so 
you know, I don't think we know, we haven't had this around long enough to really understand, but if we look at the other coronaviruses and, you know, we look at those in killers, coronaviruses in probably every species, but there's certainly ones in humans and we call those colds. And we look at that in pigs and there's two or three or four respiratory coronavirus or enteric coronaviruses in pigs and uh, coronavirus in cattle. You know, and those animals are pretty susceptible like six, seven, eight months after they've had natural infection, really good natural infection. In six, seven, eight months, they're susceptible again. Now, they don't get as sick, but they're susceptible again to be infected. So they've got this kind of really short window where they're completely protected, at least from clinical signs. But then six, seven, eight months later, they can start to have clinical signs again. And I feel like we're seeing that with people with COVID, right? People who have had COVID eight months ago, some of those people are getting COVID again, knock on wood, the ones that I know they're not you know, in a hospital, deadly sick, but there's still a potential that you could get COVID again if you had it. Yeah. And I think that's going to be our reality, right? Look and trying to extrapolate too broadly between species or too broadly between other viruses, but we all know we can get the common cold every year. We certainly know if we look at cattle, we look at pigs, we look um, at uh, other diseases, right? We can see reinfection. The good part is, is that it's not nearly as severe, and that's really what marks an endemic disease, this transition from pandemic, where we're having infections of naive people, to an endemic disease where everybody's had it. So it doesn't mean that we won't have sick people, but hopefully what we'll have is uh, maybe a bad version of the cold. Maybe it looks like flu. Maybe it's slightly worse than that or significantly better than that. Who knows? Um, but that you're going to see this sustained transmission uh, with much less severe consequences for the vast majority of people. Now, it doesn't mean that, right, we still have a lot of people that die every year from influenza. And so when you've got alternative or alternative um, uh, other disease conditions, right, pre-existing conditions, I couldn't think of the words, um, infectious disease, you know, doesn't always go very good. <laughs> you know, can result in death. Again, your immune system, you've got pre-existing conditions. This immune system, this on-off switch of this immune system doesn't work quite right. The immune system is really complicated. Right? We don't really understand how it works. I mean, we understand a lot more than we did five years ago, but or in astronomically compared to 20 years ago. But um, we, when we start to think we understand, we don't understand the next thing, right? In, in COVID, the, maybe one of the huge benefits of COVID is we're, we're going to understand a lot about the immune system. So that's good. Um, so I think, you know, you get these kind of balances going here that hopefully this thing evolves to endemic. Uh, hopefully we don't have to have boosters every year. <laughs> but who knows? We might have to. Show enter to boosters every six months. That was going to be my next question is, so are we going to have to get a booster every six months? Uh, I think what we'll figure out is, is that I could see us say, okay, uh, for healthy adults, uh, we're going to need a booster once a year for three or four years, and then the pop, the frequency of transmission decreases. And yeah, rah, 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 okay, but I I could also see, given what this thing has done, that you know, right? We could certainly have high risk populations. I can think about people in nursing homes, right? Mm, that's a pretty high risk. But you got uh, marginally effective immune systems, a lot of density. If you get virus in there, a lot of transmission. Right? Influenza is a disaster in nursing homes. So you could start to see where, okay, we're going to booster people in those spots. I could see people that have to go to the hospital. Hey, we're going to booster those people before they go into these intensive, high-density scenarios. The good news is, is that, right, 
you'd think this thing caused serious disease in the little kids. You'd be really nervous because you've always got new little kids and they would have been exposed. And so the good news is, right, that probably little kids are, are not very severely infected. And so putting a vaccination campaign together with their other childhood immunizations, we can probably keep it from being a mess in little kids. Um, but I think those are the, you know, I, I don't, if I knew what the vaccine schedule was going to look like, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in the Bahamas drinking drinks with umbrellas in them, right? Because I'd be wealthy, but. Do we need to talk about anything else before we wrap up? No, I, a lot. I think it's, um, as an infectious disease guy, as a disease ecologist, this has just been fascinating to watch, right? Um, and understand, and unfortunately, um, it's playing out a lot like what we've seen with um, animal health diseases, <laughs> uh, particularly as we look at these RNA viruses and livestock. I mean, it's not um, dissimilar in its patterns, right? It, it gets endemic. It's everywhere. I think this Omicron was really interesting to me because we were trying to think about, oh, it's only in South Africa. Well, crap, it's in France. Oh, it's in Belgium. Oh, wait, maybe it's in the U.S. I think, I think one of the things we've learned over time, you know, in my day job is that you can't, if you think you know where emerging diseases are, you're kidding yourself because they move way faster and you've got this lag between infection and detection and people move all over the world today and livestock moves all over the world today. And so you're always chasing your tail. And so when you hear of something, and I think that's maybe one of the lessons hopefully we learn that when disease is detected anywhere, it's probably everywhere. We've had a lot of discussions about African swine fever in the pig world, and I think the general fear is is that we're going to pull out the 1970s playbook uh, for a 2021 or 22 or 23 or hopefully 2030 disease. Um, and are we smart enough to learn our lessons here watching what's happened with coronavirus? And we had a coronavirus outbreak in pigs in the U.S., and we didn't manage that very well. And... And so can we shape our thinking and, and revise our thinking and how do we take lessons away from this to um, improve what we do and maybe deal with reality and not create so many collateral damage that uh, uh, none of us want to see? Well, that was very well spoken. We got a lot of challenges ahead, but we have a lot of smart people working on them. So thank you for joining us on The Round Barn. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'd love to hear from you too. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the round barn one. We may even share your comments on our next show. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing. We also offer a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and veterinarians too. You can learn more at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. See you soon.